Tonight, I'm going to start sharing on the four keys to staying full of God. Let me preface this. The way that I started teaching this is because I was at a service in Louisville, Kentucky, and a woman came up to me and she said, Boy, this has changed my life. She had never felt the love of God. She had never had a revelation of God's love for her the way that she had through those meetings. I'd been there for four days. And she came up and she says, this is wonderful, but I know that when you leave, give it a week or a month or whatever, and I'm going to lose this revelation and I'll be back once again to where I need to understand God's love. And boy, when she said that, it grieved me, but at the same time, I recognized it to be true. You know, I don't know if any of you grew up with this, but I was actually taught that we are like leaky vessels. We're like a bucket with holes in it that you just got to continually be filling And let me say this, that by most people's experience, that's true. That is the experience of the average person is that God touches your life, maybe through these meetings. You get excited about it, but then within a very short period of time, man, you just empty again and you need something special from the Lord all over again. That's what most people experience, but you know, that's not what the Lord taught. He says that, man, you're supposed to go from glory to glory, not pit to pit. Amen. You aren't supposed to be just struggling all of the time. It says that, you know, that he'll bring up the valleys and make the mountains and hills low. If you bring the mountains down and exalt the valleys, there ought to be some smooth sailing. You know, there should be consistency in the Christian life. You do not have to have a yo-yo experience with God. And when this lady was asking me this question, I was saying, God, I don't understand. I never consciously thought about it. But, you know, my life has not been a yo-yo experience. You know, my mother's here, praise God, she's a blessing to me. And you can ask her and testify that since March the 23rd, 1968, I have been one excited, turned-on guy. And I've had a lot of bad things happen in my life, a lot of things that I'm sure Satan tried to derail me from what God wanted in my life. And I've had opposition and things come at me, but you know what? It has never stolen from me what God did. I've never lost the joy of it. What the Lord did in 1968 is stronger in my life tonight than it was 32 years ago. And it's gotten better. And yet, you know what? That is not the experience of most people. And it doesn't have to be that way. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. Now, before I even get into this teaching about how to stay full of God, these four keys to staying full of God, let me just make some statements here that will really help you if you'll listen to this. God is not the one who comes and goes in your life. You will perceive the presence of God stronger at some times than you do at others. You will perceive the anointing of God, the joy of the Lord and things stronger at some times than you do at others. But it is not God who gives that joy, who gives the anointing, who gives the presence and then withdraws. Now, this is a very important point because very few people understand that. Say, for instance, if you don't have the joy of the Lord, most people would bombard heaven and say, Oh, God, what's wrong? Oh, God, please touch my life again. I want a fresh touch from you. God, do something new in my life. Did you know that that's actually an insult, I believe, against God? If you pray that way, you're presupposing that when you get empty or dry or lose your joy or your peace or whatever, you are presupposing that God is the one who withdrew from you. And that's not true. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. If you've ever felt the joy of the Lord, if you've ever had healing in your life or prosperity or anything, God has never changed towards you, ever. 
God is always releasing. He's always transmitting and releasing His blessing and His anointing in your life. It is never God that changes. It's us that change. Now, that's an important point that you get this because as we talk about how to stay full of God, I'm not going to be teaching you how to bombard God, how to manipulate God. Matter of fact, I just recently read somebody, I read an article where somebody was teaching on this same subject, and I won't mention who this is, but basically what they were doing, they didn't say it straightforward, but here's the impression that you get, that the reason you aren't walking in joy and don't have peace and love and all of this stuff is because you've done something to displease God So they were telling you how you could please God and once again get the power of God manifest in your life. That is never the case. God has never withdrawn from you. God is not the variable. It's always us that's the variable. So everything I'm going to be talking about is about how you can fix you, not God. Amen? This is not a lesson on how to bombard the gates of heaven and get God to do something. God wants to bless you more than you want to be blessed. Matter of fact, I could say it this way. You are as full of God tonight as you are believing to be. It's not God who determines how full of Him you are, how much joy and peace and victory and healing and anointing. God is not the one that determines that. See, this is the reason I can get excited about our sister being healed tonight and this little girl being healed. The reason I'm excited is because I know God is always willing for every single person to be healed. It is never God that doesn't heal. It's never God that doesn't move in your life. It's us that doesn't receive from Him. And we're going to be encouraging you how to receive. You know, I'm using a wireless microphone tonight. What that is is a radio signal. And it goes back there and then they rebroadcast it over these speakers. Do you know that there's other radio signals in this room tonight? And if you say, oh, I don't believe that because you can't hear it, did you know that doesn't mean that it's not so? Those radio signals are here. There are television signals in this room tonight, but you don't always perceive it until you put a television or a radio up there and turn it on and tune it in, and then is not when the signal starts being broadcast. The signal is already being broadcast before you ever turned your receiver on. And when you turn the receiver on and you experience it, isn't when the broadcast begins. That's when you turned it on. And see, it's that way with God. God is healing every person that ever needs to be healed. God is giving joy to you constantly. I mean, the transmitters of heaven are beaming 24 hours a day, every day of the world, God is never the one who's not blessing you. It's us that's turned off and not tuned in. Now, if you really understand what I'm saying, see, this would provide you with a jump start, and this would make a huge difference in your life if you just understood this basic thing that we're saying right here. Do you know that people praying for revival today, and I know I get criticism. People say that I'm not for revival. I am for revival. I just don't believe that the way we're going about it today is the way it's going to happen. Did you know praying for revival and saying, Oh, God, send revival. The way it's being done today, people believe that it's up to God how much revival we have. They say it's God's fault that there isn't more of an outpouring and more of a move of God in Shreveport Bossier. No, that's not so. God wants these people saved more than you ever thought about wanting them saved. It's not God who's not pouring out of His Spirit. It's being poured out continually But you know what? We are not very good receivers. 
It's us that are short-circuiting the power and the blessing of God. God is wanting a huge revival. He wants every single person here born again. It would be God's will for every person in Shreveport Bossier to be listening to this message tonight. Amen? God is out for every person to receive. He's not against any person. But you know what? People aren't tuned in, turned on and tuned in to God. And so what they're doing is praying, Oh God, fix your transmitter. Oh God, why aren't you sending revival? God, what's wrong with you? And we're trying to gain thousands of people to get together and to twist the arm of God and get God motivated. That is an ungodly prayer and you are worshiping a God that you believe is not really a good God that for some reason or another is ticked off at America because we've lived such an ungodly life and it's like he's up there with his arms folded saying, I'm not doing a thing for you until you repent more, until you grovel in the dirt a little more. That's wrong. You know what? This gets me kicked out of a lot of churches for preaching stuff like this because praying for revival and pleading with God to move and do something is a mainstay of American Christianity. But that is presupposing that it's God who is holding back. No, God is transmitting. And I guarantee you, you can be as revived tonight as you want to be. You can be as excited tonight as you want to be. It's not God who is holding back His anointing and His joy and His blessing. If you aren't full of God tonight, it's you that is chosen not to be full of God. And you may think, oh no, I really desire it. Well, you may desire it, but you've made choices that have stopped you from receiving and manifesting the joy and the peace of God. And so that's what I want to share with you is about four things that you can do to fix your receiver, not God's transmitter. Amen? This is telling you how to stay full of God. If you're a leaky vessel, it's because you got stinking thinking. And we're going to be pouncing on your head, amen, and helping you fix your thinking. So let's turn over to Romans chapter 1. Real quickly, let me give you just a little bit of background. We're going to be in verse 21, but in verse 16, Paul said this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, that's talking about in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And there's a lot in those passages. I hadn't got time to share that. But let me just say that this word gospel is a radical term. You know, I've read some stuff about this word. In all of Greek literature outside of the Bible, prior to the Bible times, there was only two times that this uh, word gospel was used in Greek literature. It was a word that existed, but it was an obscure word that hardly anybody used. And what it literally meant, the word gospel means good news, literally. But actually, the way it was used, it meant more than good news. It meant too good to be true news. It was a superlative. It was like, this is too good to be true. When you use the word gospel, it was used very seldom because it was such a powerful word. And when Jesus came along, they began to use this word gospel to refer to what he was preaching because it was talking about that God was not angry with people. God was not judging people. He took the very harlot taken in the act of adultery and extended mercy to her. That's too good to be true. And they began to use this term gospel to refer to Jesus and the way that he loved people unconditionally. And so because of that, the religious Jews who had been raised under a system that was works-oriented, performance, law, legalism, judgment, rejection, it was harsh. 
I mean, it was very harsh, and that's not the way God intended it to be, but that's the way that the Jews of Jesus' time were. The religious Jews persecuted anybody who preached the true gospel because it was just too good to be true. And so they were always upset. And so when Paul said, it's the gospel, it's this good news, it's the too good to be true news of God's love that is the power of God to change people's lives, the immediate question arose, well, then what about the wrath of God? You've got to let people know that there's a hell and that God is a just God and that He's going to send people to hell. And you've got to use a fear of hell to scare people out of hell, basically. That was the religious concept of the day. Did you know that hell is a real place? I will talk to people about hell. If you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, people are going to hell. I believe that it exists, but that is really not the message of Christianity. It is a part, it's a truth, but it is not good news. Amen. (laughs) And it says over here in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. The thing that will really draw people to God is not a fear of going to hell, and that basically has been the message of the American church, is to preach, believe on Jesus so you won't go to hell. This is what I'm going to be dealing with in the afternoon sessions. Every day this week is talking about the way that we should be preaching the gospel and the way that we should be discipling people. We've changed the message to where believe on Jesus so you won't go to hell. That's the wrong message. Now, it's a true message. But it's the wrong message. The message that is really going to release the power and draw people to God in droves is when you start talking about the goodness of God and how much God loves them and not just relating it all to by and by, but right now and now and the rough now and now. And so we need to be preaching the good news. So the moment you bring up that point, somebody's going to say, what about the wrath of God? You've got to tell them about the wrath of God. Well, Paul answers that in verses 18 through 20. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. You could say, is already revealed is the point that he's making. In other words, the reason you don't have to preach the wrath of God is because the truth is people already know that they are not in right standing with God. That's why they have a fear of death, is because they aren't sure of how they're going to relate to God, and eternity is on the line. So he's saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it unto them. You know what this is saying? It's saying that the Creator placed within the creation a homing device. There is an intuitive revelation of the existence of God on the inside of every person who has ever breathed on this earth. And you'll have some people tell you, oh, that's not so. I had some people tell me that they don't believe there's a God, they don't feel God, they have no conviction, no awareness, and that they are totally godless and God has never touched them. That is a lie. They're lying through their teeth. And some people say, now how could you say that? Because I believe God's Word more than I believe what people say. And to prove it, you know, when I was in Vietnam, I had some people tell me they didn't believe there was a God. They were atheists. But you know what? When the bombs got to dropping and the bullets were flying, these atheists were crying out to God for mercy, amen, (laughs) at the top of their lungs. All of these atheists who didn't believe there was a God was crying out to this God they didn't believe in. You know, the truth is, in their heart, every person who has ever breathed has a revelation of the existence of God, is what this is saying. And it goes on to say in verse 20, it says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, not obscurely or vaguely seen, but it says clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Do you know there will never be a person standing before God and says, but I never heard, I never knew that you existed. Even if they hadn't heard a preacher preach to them, they've had this inner witness on the inside of every single person, and they will be accountable according to the revelation that they have. That's true of every person. I've had people before who were atheists tell me that they don't believe in God, and I just talk to them like they do. And they said, I told you I don't believe in God. I said, I know what you said, but you know what? You're lying. It's not true. And I've had many people who said they didn't believe in God as I just kept talking, and I pricked that little part of them that already had this knowledge of God. All of a sudden, they opened up, and they started admitting it. You know, the Bible says in Psalms 46.10, to be still and know that I am God. Do you know, when you get still, when you aren't occupied with anything, do you know this homing device, you can hear it. It'll start drawing you to God. And that's the reason that prior to salvation, people don't like to be still. They call it being bored. They're lonely. They use a lot of terms. But you know what the deal is? If they get quiet, all of a sudden, their heart goes to talking to them about, you know this isn't right. You shouldn't be living this way. There's got to be something more to life than this. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who created me? And you know what? They will just saturate themselves. They've got to have the television on or radio on. They've got to be doing something constantly or this homing device will go to speaking to them and convicting them over their lifestyle. The truth is every last person already has a revelation of God. You were born with it and it stays with you throughout your entire life. But... The rest of this chapter, beginning with verse 21, tells you progressive things that you can do that will stop this revelation or diminish this intuitive revelation. And you can actually reach a place to where your heart becomes hardened so much to it that after a period of time, it's like this homing device, you can't hear it anymore. You aren't having this revelation of God. So that's what the rest of Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and following is talking about, is about progressive things you have to do to walk away from this revelation. And I'm aware that most of you that are here tonight have already received the Lord, and so it's not like you're walking away from the revelation of the existence of God, but you know what? This is true of everything that God does in your life. This is not only concerning the existence of God, but say, for instance, if you've ever known the love of God, if you've ever had the joy of the Lord in your life, and if at one time you were really excited about that, and it seems like it's not as strong today as it was at some other time, you are the one that took steps away from God. You are the one that turned down the volume, the impact of that experience in your life. God did not stop. God hasn't changed in His attitude towards you at all. So it doesn't matter what revelation it is. It could be healing. You know, if you've ever been healed and yet it seems like you're losing that healing and you're back in the previous state, it's not God that quit transmitting the healing. It's you that quit receiving the healing. And I can promise you that you've done one of these four things that are listed in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. You know, I've got four things here in just this one verse. We could go on through every verse and list a bunch of things here, but we're going to just deal with Romans 1, 21 through Wednesday night. We'll talk about one night on each one of these things. In verse 21, it says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. That's the first thing. Neither were thankful. That's the second thing. Became vain in their imaginations. That's the third thing. And their foolish heart was darkened. 
The very first thing that will happen when God touches your life, the very first thing that Satan will do, he'll come immediately to steal away the Word, and the way he'll try and get that Word, that revelation, the blessing or whatever God's given you, away from you is he will try and get you to quit glorifying God as God, to quit glorifying what God has done in your life. And if you quit glorifying God, then you experience a losing of that revelation. It seems like you're losing your joy, your peace, your healing, or whatever. But if you don't quit glorifying God, then you'll never lose this joy. You'll never lose what God has done in your life. It'll increase. So what does it mean to glorify God? You know, when I first ran across this, the very first thing I did was look this up in the Strong's Concordance, and the Greek word that is used here for glorify, it means to render or esteem glorious. And I thought, that didn't help. You know, this is like when you're in school, and you go to a teacher, and you say, what does this word mean? And they say, look it up. <laughs> and you look it up and read the definition, and half the time you still don't know what it means. I wanted somebody to explain this to me. And anyway, when I read that, to render or esteem glorious, it didn't do a lot for me. So I started looking up each one of the words, and I looked up render and esteem. And when I got to the word esteem, this is when God really began to make it work in my life. Because the word esteem means to value or to prize or to reverence, is what the word esteem means. And when I saw that, I got to thinking about this. And you know what happens is, is when God touches your life, you place a value on what God has done in your life. But then Satan is going to just immediately come against the value that you've placed on God, and he's going to compete for that value. He's going to try and come against you to steal from you the worth and the value that you've placed on the things of God. And this happens to every single person. I can promise you that tonight, the message that you're hearing, I've seen this change the lives of thousands of people. I believe that God wants to touch people here tonight. Some of you will receive it. Some of you won't. But you know what? You are placing a value on what you're hearing. Paul said it this way in Thessalonians. He says, I praise God that when you heard the word, you received it as it is in truth, not the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. See, there's some people that will say, oh man, this is God speaking to me. Other people will think it's Andrew speaking to you, and you'll place a different value on it, and it will affect your life according to the value that you place on it. You place a value on everything that comes into your life. And so Satan is going to immediately attack the value you've placed on God and on His Word and on what God is doing in your life. Say, for instance, if the Lord really speaks to you, and if you have an experience and just feel and experience the love of God and think, man, God loves me. God Almighty loves me. And if you get the benefit of that and the joy of that and the peace of that, you know what he'll do? You'll go to work tomorrow and he'll agitate somebody in your business place that'll just come up to you and, and I mean dump on you and tell you what an absolute zero you are. And they'll just go to criticizing your performance and everything. And you know what's happening? He's competing. <laughs> Was I at your workplace? <laughs> but you can go to church and you can get so happy and so blessed and then you go to work and they just, I mean, somebody just dumps on you. You know what Satan is doing? He's trying to get you. Here's what God says about you. you know, it's like a seesaw. And you know, when one side is up, the other side's down. And if the other side is up, this side's down. You can't have both sides up at the same time. 
Well, that's the way that this value is in your life. If you are really valuing what God has said, man, it's way up here. God Almighty loves me. He not only loves me, He likes me. He's pleased with me. You go to work thinking that, you know what? He'll start criticizing you, and what your tendency to do is you will start honoring, prizing, valuing the recognition, the acceptance of people up here equal to God. And if you do that, if you start letting their word have power and increase, well, then as this side goes up, the value of other people, then the value on what God has done in your life comes down, and you start losing your peace and your joy and victory that that revelation gave you. It's not God who quit transmitting it, but you allowed something else to occupy the position in your life that God was meant to occupy. Did you know that everything that comes against you, you place a value on that? You do this. Nobody else does it. Nobody dictates the value of something. Like, for instance, if your husband or your wife or your child or your boss or somebody else, if they came and said to me the exact same words that have been spoken to you that have upset you so much, and if they said those same words to me, did you know it would have a different effect on me than it has on you? Because I don't value their opinion the way you do. And some of you are saying, well, you're supposed to value your wife or your husband or your children or something else. Well, yes, you're supposed to value them more than I do, but in a relative sense. See, this is what it's saying in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. I quoted that verse this morning. Unless you hate your own life, your father, your mother, your children, your wife, and your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. Excuse me, I was quoting from Luke. Luke says it that way, unless you hate these things. But in Matthew, it says, you have to love me more than these. It's showing you that it's a comparative worth and value that it's talking about. Sure, you're supposed to value certain people that are close to you more than I do, but you know what? In comparison to God, there ought to be such a worth, such a value placed on what God has done in your life that nothing competes. Nothing competes. And you know what, brothers and sisters? It's not true that way with most people. I bet you that the majority of people in this auditorium tonight if there is a difference, if you do glorify the things of God more than you do the things of this world, the difference is so close you have to take like a magnifying glass <laughs> to see which one you value the most. It shouldn't be that way. It ought to be like God is just infinitely greater in everything else. You have to disesteem everything else. You have to decrease the worth and the value on things. You know, we've actually become codependent on everybody and everything except God. There are some of you in here that if your mate right now was to leave you, you'd fall apart like a $2 suitcase. <laughs> and some of you thought, well, you're supposed to believe for this marriage and it should be here. Well, I agree that that's God's best and God wants to move in your marriage. But you know what? You need to make some commitments and say, God, you are so much greater than my mate that I'll never miss a stride. I'll never miss a beat. I'll never quit serving you if everybody forsakes me. Do you know Moses' wife left him on his way down to Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Zipporah left him and was gone for a year or two. And you know what? Moses went down and still saw all of these plagues released, still saw the Red Sea parted, and he did all of those things while he was separated from his wife. Man, it's quiet in here. Yeah. <laughs> 
See, there's some of you that would say, well, brother, I believe that I'm supposed to praise God and keep loving God and value God, but if it's something like a divorce, you can't praise God going through a divorce. Yes, you can. I'm sure that I've given this illustration in here, but it's so good I want to hear this again myself. So I'm going to tell you this one. But I told you before I go to Charlotte every year and this partner of mine has me into his business. And so I go in and he tells his employees, he's got 30-something employees, he says, the clock is running. He says, you listen to this guy as long as he wants to talk. And I sit down and I just preach to his employees. And I don't know, five, six years ago now, I saw 10 of his employees born again and it was really powerful. And I was in this back room after I'd spoken, and this one lady came back who had tried to kill herself the day before. It slit her wrist and had wound up in the hospital. And she was an alcoholic. She was going through her third or fourth divorce. She was poor. I went over to her house, and I mean, it's extreme poverty. Everything in her life was depressing and discouraging. And anyway, she came in to talk to me, and she says, Now, I'm not a Christian like you and Chip, the owner of this business, but I know that prayer works, and I want prayer for my marriage. And then she began to cry and tell me it was her third or fourth marriage and that her husband had filed for a divorce and that if she got a divorce, she just didn't know if she could make it and she wanted me to pray for her marriage. And so I stopped this lady and I said, now let me make sure I heard you right. I said, you aren't a Christian and you know that you aren't a Christian. And she said, that's right. And I said, if you were to die right now, you would go straight to hell. And she says, that's correct. And I said, and you want me to pray for your marriage and not pray for your salvation. And she said, yes. And I said, lady, did you realize that after you've burned in hell for a thousand years, you won't give a rip whether you were ever married or not? I said, who cares about your marriage? You need to be born again. And this woman says, you know what, you're right. And so I prayed with her and she got born again. Now, I'm not saying that God is not concerned about your marriage, but I'm saying you have to have a relative worth. There are some of you that believe that you have placed so much value on marriage. You have placed so much value on careers, so much value on the acceptance of other people that honestly it's competing with your value that you've placed on the things of God. And you need to make some decisions and say, God, there is nothing, nothing that could even remotely tempt me to ever decrease the value on you and what you've done in my life. And you have to just magnify and glorify God way up here and disesteem everything else. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is talking about Jesus. And it says in verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God the Father. In verse 2 here, when it says that he despised the shame, did you know that the Greek word that is used for despise literally means to disesteem? Or basically, it's the exact opposite of what I'm talking about, glorifying, esteeming, valuing, prizing God, Jesus disesteemed the shame associated with what he was going through. See, when you are glorifying God, you cannot truly glorify God and glorify everything else in a relative worth. You have to disesteem anything else. Jesus disesteemed the shame. 
that was associated with crucifixion. He intentionally shrunk that. He intentionally minimized the cost. You know, this is not the way that most of us function. I can guarantee you that if you would have been called upon by God to suffer crucifixion and to go through all of that, you know the way most of us think? We would have immediately looked at all of the cost, everything that this was going to cost us, we would have looked at the pain, we would have looked at all of these things, and we would have valued our own life, our own peace, our own security. We would have valued those things so much that we would have not been able to value what God called us to do. But Jesus had already disesteemed His own life. He told us that unless you hate your own life... See, He had already rendered everything else in His life basically worthless compared to what God had done in His life. Paul did this exact same thing over in Philippians chapter 3. Let me show you this passage of Scripture. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said this in verse 7, "...but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord." for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Did you know that this word count here is the same thing? You place a value on everything in your life. You're the one that esteems what's important to you. And he says, I placed a value on Christ knowing Him, and I placed a value on everything else but Christ as being dung. Well, that's a strong statement. You know, that's just a nice word for some other things that we use. And Paul here is saying, man, I count everything except Jesus like dung in my life. Most of us in here can't say that. And that's the reason that we can't do the things that Paul did. And that's the reason that we don't have the same joy. You know, the book of Philippians was written by Paul while he was in prison. And yet there's 17 times in the book of Philippians that the word joy, rejoice, rejoicing is used. It's his happiest book that he ever wrote. He was just rejoicing and praising God, and this is from prison. You know why many of us, if you were put in prison tonight, why you wouldn't be singing at midnight and praising God? It's because you have so much worth and value on your life, on your freedom, on things. You have placed so much value on things that are unimportant. Your life is important compared to other people. But compared to God, did you know what? Your life is worth nothing. It's worth zero. And you need to put that relative worth on your life. As long as you are the center of your universe, you're always going to be upset when somebody rubs you the wrong way. It'll always be that way. See, Paul had a different value system. He says, I'm actually struggling whether to stay here or to go to heaven. I'd rather be in heaven, but I know it's more needful for me to stay here. Paul didn't count his life here as anything. He's the one that placed the value here. You've placed value on everything that comes into your life. You're the one that does that. And so, you know, the very first thing that happens when God touches you and after a while it seems like you begin to lose the revelation, you begin to lose the benefit of what God has done in your life, you know the very first thing that's happening? It's because you've got value on so many other things. So many other things are important to you that it's sapping your time, your energy, your attention. 
And because of that, that's what causes what God has done in your life to begin to diminish over time. It's not because God has quit giving. It's not because God changed in His attitude towards you. It's because you've let something else occupy that place of importance that God was meant to occupy. You know, to illustrate all of this, when I got turned on to the Lord, March the 23rd, 1968, I was 18 years old, and I was in this prayer meeting, and it's a long story, but you've heard me give it before, but I mean God just revealed His love to me supernaturally. I knew that God loved me. I knew that God carried my picture in His wallet, that He had an 8 by 10 of me on His mantle. I mean, I knew that God loved me passionately. I mean, it wasn't just an abstract concept to me. It was real. And for four and a half months, I literally experienced that love of God just transforming my life. And man, I was excited. I remember the very next morning... This happened on a Saturday night. The very next morning, I got up in front of my Baptist church and told them that, man, God loves me. And I mean, He doesn't just love me from a distance. God is passionate about me. God passionately loves me. God's pleased with me. God likes me. I was up testifying about how much God was in love with me. Do you know, it would have been better if I'd have cussed. <laughs> They'd have been more merciful on me if I'd have just got up and cussed or gone and committed adultery. That can be forgiven. But you know what? They took it because they equated God loving you passionately with you having great virtue. And they thought it was based on performance. They didn't understand grace. And so when I was saying that God loved me passionately, they immediately thought I was saying I had something they didn't have. I was better than them. And you know what? I began to start receiving criticism. And I mean, people got mad at me. And I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, Who do you think you are? You said you're filled with the Spirit. I told them God filled me with the Spirit because that's what it felt like. And they said, You're saying you're filled with the Spirit. I said, Well, Paul said to be filled with the Spirit. And they said, Well, that was Paul. Who do you think you are? And they said, Are you putting yourself in the category of Paul? And I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just telling you what happened. You know what was happening? I was an 18-year-old boy. Here was the seminary professor and the educated people who did this for a living, and they started criticizing me. And you know what Satan was trying to do? He was trying to get me to value a man's opinion more than I valued what God had said to me. You know, I didn't sleep all night long that night. I was so overwhelmed with the love of God. And you can ask my mother. It was four and a half months before I slept an hour at a time. I'd just sleep a few minutes and I'd be awake thinking about God loves me and I'd read the Word until I'd pass out again. But I mean, it was nearly four and a half months. I'd just sleep an hour at a time or something like that. I don't think I ever sat down to a meal for four and a half months. Who could sit and eat knowing that God loves you? Amen. I was just so excited about it. So here I was valuing the fact that God showed me He loved me. Here came another voice. And was I going to value it the same? If I would have started increasing the value on that, then you know what? My value and worth and reverence for what God would have said would have started coming down and I would have started losing the revelation of it. And you know, it wasn't because of some great strength on my own. You know, I didn't even know I was hungry before God touched my life. I didn't know how hungry I was. And I knew that there would never be anything that would ever excite me more than the love and the acceptance of God. I immediately 
put God above everything else and disesteemed anything else. And I remember when these people who I respected and who I had tried to please and gain their acceptance started ragging on me. Did you know what? I just turned away and I said, Look, I don't care what you say. I kept the same relative worth and value on the things of God. And because of it, it didn't diminish. And then I got so in love with the Lord, I was in my first year of college, and I lost all interest in math. That's what I was. I was a math major. I lost all interest in college. I got to where I hated going to college. I went every day for two and a half months and tried to make my classes, but I never made a single class because I'd get to talking to somebody about the Lord. That's what I love to do is to tell people about how God loved me and how much He loved them and how He could change their life. And I'd get to talking to somebody about the Lord and the bell would ring and I couldn't let them go to hell because the bell rang. So <laughs> I'd keep talking to them and I'd miss the class. And then I'd get to talking to somebody else and another bell would ring. And so I went to class every day for two and a half months but never made a single class. And after a while, I thought, why am I paying money to go to school and do all of this if I don't like it and if I never make the class? And I prayed about it, and it was a long story, but I eventually, the Lord told me to quit school. Now, that's not for everybody. Some of you may need an education, but you know what? I didn't need to be a math major to do what I'm doing. <laughs> and the Lord had something different for me, and so he told me to quit school. So I announced to my family, I announced to everybody that I was quitting school. And boy, you thought it was bad before then. That was really bad. And you know, my mother, she's sitting right here listening to me. I love my mother. She loves me. We've had a really close relationship since my father died when I was 12 years old. But you know what? My mother didn't understand it. And it wasn't that she was mean or against me, but she could not believe that it was God. Because you've got to remember, this was in 1968. I lost $350 a month from the government when I quit school because I was getting Social Security payments for my dad's death. And as long as I stayed in school, I got them. If I quit school, I lost it. So I lost $350 a month. Everybody was telling me that this isn't smart. This is not what you're supposed to do. And this was during the height of the Vietnam War. And I had a deferment as long as I stayed in school. But if I quit school, I instantly got an all-expense-paid trip to Vietnam. <laughs> and you know what? People started coming at me. And I remember my mother and other people. You know what this was? And again, I'm not ragging on my mother. I'm just saying she didn't understand. But Satan was trying to get me to value my relationship with my mother more than I valued God. And some of you say, well, you need those relationships. Well, yes, you do, but way down here, not up here. Nothing in my life competes with God. You know what? My mother did not die for me and go to hell and raise from the dead for the forgiveness of my sins. I love my mother, but I guarantee you I love God infinitely more. You know, I love God more than I love my wife, than I love anything else. Some of you can't really say that because you think, well, I would never make a distinction. I love them both the same. No, you can't do that. The Bible says, again, going back to Luke and also to Matthew, it says in relationship, you have to hate your wife and your husband and your children and your own life also. See, this is one of the problems is that we value relationships. We value career. We value the recognition of people so much that... They may be okay in their place, but we put so much value on it that if you loving God and speaking for God cost you your career, cost you the acceptance of people, cost you some of these things, you wouldn't do it because the relative worth is too close. There is no relative worth to me. My wife knows that I love God more than I love her, and I know that she loves God more than she loves me. 
And instead of that distracting from our relationship, it's a plus. Because I guarantee you, if my wife loved me only according to me and how I treated her, she could have left me a long time ago. I put my wife through the ringer backwards. I tell you what, it's been tough being a minister's wife and some of the things that we've been through. I was visiting with a guy one time who had committed adultery and all of these things and was in a mental hospital. And I mean, terrible things happened. He was an alcoholic, a drug addict. He was everything. And then the Lord changed his life and turned him around. And he was in the ministry. And he was telling me about his background. And then he asked me what happened. And I was giving my testimony. But I was telling him about the poverty that we went through, the hardships, the hurts, the pains. My wife being eight months pregnant and going two weeks without a stitch of food forced fast, and this man stood up and hit the table and says, my God, you are more ungodly than I ever thought about being. <laughs> he says, that's the worst testimony I've ever heard. And you know what? In a lot of ways, that's true. If Jamie just loved me for who I was, did you know what? She could have left me a long time ago. It is her commitment to God that keeps her loving me, and it's my commitment to God that keeps me loving her. That shouldn't distract from a relationship. It ought to make it better. But you know what? There's some people in here that are so codependent upon your little world that you've created that if something happens to your world that it looks like you're going to lose your marriage or lose your kids or lose your wealth or lose your home or lose your respect or lose your fame or something, you would just come crashing emotionally. You're the one that placed value on those things. You're the one that made everything else so important. Quiet in here. You know, when I was in England, and I had a woman come up, and she says, the reason we're so quiet is because we were taught not to talk with our mouth full. And she says, I just get so much from what you're saying, I can't say anything. My mouth is full. So I'm going to take it that way, that you're full, amen, that God's speaking to you. But you know what? You are the one that places that value. So anyway, here's my mother, not understanding. Satan was tempting me to say, well, God... This experience, look, it's cost me the recognition of my church, people who are supposed to be knowing what they're doing. They're criticizing me. Now, here's my own mother that doesn't understand. She went two weeks without talking to me, not because she hated me, but she just didn't know what to say. Finally, I remember I said, I'm going to take you out to eat. And we went out to eat, and I forced her to talk, and I said, talk to me, say something. And she broke out crying, and she says, I'm just so bothered by what you're doing. And it wasn't positive. It was negative, the first word she said in two weeks. You know what? Satan was trying to get me to value that relationship above what God said. But by the grace of God, I actually believed that it would always work out, and it did. And the Lord appeared to Mother in a dream and turned things around. But you know what? And she works for me today, praise God. She's a blessing. So, you know what? It did work out, but whether it would have worked out or not, you know, it wouldn't have affected the value I placed on what God did in my life. Boy, this is a real key. I can promise you that God has touched every single person in here in a significant way. Every person in here sometime or another had God touch you, but then Satan just comes at you through all of these avenues to get you to place value on other things and change your worth and value, your identity over to them instead of what God says. And somewhere down the line, if you've lost your joy, your peace, your revelation of the things of God, it's because you placed value on those things. You quit glorifying God. You know, right after that, I went and was sent for a pre-induction physical for the Army. I passed that. A recruiter came to my house, knocked on my door, came in, opened his briefcase, put out all of his stuff, 
And he started telling me the benefits of volunteering for the draft instead of being drafted. And I said, I could save both of us a lot of time. And he says, how's that? And I said, well, the reason that I got sent for this pre-induction physical and was classified 1A is because I quit school. He said, that's right. And I said, but see, God told me to quit school. (laughs) And when I said that, you could see a little smirk on this guy's face. And I said, so see, it's really God's responsibility. If God wants me drafted, I'll be drafted. And if he doesn't, I won't. And when I said that, this guy just broke out laughing. And he said, boy, I guarantee you, you're going to Vietnam. (laughs) And you know what? Boy, that made me mad. It made me mad because he didn't value God the way I did. In a sense, he was saying, God, who's God compared to the United States government? Man, you're dealing with the government. He was saying, the government's stronger than God. God can't keep you from being drafted. You know what? If I would have accepted that value, then immediately I would have begun to lose some of that joy and peace of what God had done in my life. But I remember, here I was, an 18 or 19-year-old boy. This guy was like 30 years old representing the United States government. Man, I stood up and put my finger in this guy's chest and I said, Buddy, if God wants me drafted, I'll be drafted. And if he doesn't, you or the United States government or every demon in hell can't draft me. Amen. And this guy just stood up, gathered up his stuff, put it in his briefcase, walked out the door, and in the morning I had my draft notice. It was in my mailbox. I bet you that guy processed it himself. I believe he probably hand-delivered it to my mailbox. But you know what? I didn't care because it was true. See, some people will say, well, man, I'm not sure I'd do something if it would mean that you could have been drafted and go to Vietnam. See, I place such a value on the fact that God loved me, that I would have died for that. It, would, it wouldn't matter to me. I didn't care. Man, I'd rather die and go to be with the Lord than to live my life separate from God. You know, I didn't give a rip about going to Vietnam. I didn't care about any of that stuff. And you know, that's the reason that I can truthfully say that over 30-something years, 32 years, I have never lost my joy of what God did in my life. My very worst day since then is better than my best day prior to that. I've had terrible things happen in my life. I've shared with some of you, and you know some of the things that have gone on in my family. I've had terrible things happen, but you know what? It's been just like a momentary flash. Any discouragement or depression that I've felt, it never lasts over an hour. I doubt if I've been a day in my life sad since 1968. I would seriously doubt that I've had a full day that I haven't had joy and peace since 1968. And you know why? It's because, man, I put value and worth on the fact that God loves me. When I was a kid over here in Arlington, Texas... We used to play a game that we called wolf and sheep, and there's a lot of different ways of doing it, but you go capture the other people, catch them, and you have a jail thing that you put them in, and then the other people try and come and touch them and get them set free. But the team has a home base, and when they're touching that home base, it was always a tree or something. You couldn't do anything to them. They had to get away from there. You know what? This is my home base. Like when anything happens, when something bad happens, I just retreat and go back to, God, you love me. God, you value me. You're pleased with me, God. And you know what? I start just thinking about how much God loves me and it makes every problem I've got just melt away in comparison. There is no comparison. 
I mean, I have spent a huge amount of time glorifying, placing value and worth on what God has done in my life. And because of it, it's gotten stronger and better. I can promise you that if God has touched you and it seems like you're a leaky vessel and it's leaked out, the reason it's leaking out is because you have other things that you value close to or equal to or even greater than God and His opinion about you. If you would get to a place where, God, you're more important than anybody or anything else in my life, nothing will compete with you. You intentionally glorify God and disesteem everything else. Jesus disesteemed the shame. He despised the shame. You know, it gives you the key right there in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame and endured the cross. He chose to focus on the joy. What joy was there before Jesus going into the crucifixion? See, most of us would have been so short-term thinking that we wouldn't have seen any joy in that. We wouldn't have seen anything good in what he was doing. You know what Jesus did? He looked at the resurrection. He knew that that was not going to be the end, that cross. He knew that he would triumph over Satan. He knew that he would liberate the human race. Jesus looked down through eternity and saw you and me and saw the bondages and the hurts and the pains and the sickness and the deafness and the cross-eyed and everything else and knew that, man, I'm going to die and redeem these people and I'm going to bring joy to them. And he chose to magnify that, to glorify that, and to disesteem the shame and the rejection, the physical suffering, the fact that they were going to strip him naked and mock him and say, if you're the Christ, prophesy. Man, he was going to be insulted ridiculed, hurt. He chose to minimize those things and maximize the other things. He's the one that placed that value on it. You can place a value on anything in your life. You're the one that determines the value of everything. Boy, that's important. See, there's some people that say, but if you're going through a divorce, well, I gave you that example about this woman that was going through a divorce, but all of a sudden when she began to put a relative value on things, she decided there was something more important than that divorce. And she began to magnify and glorify that. You're the one that determined you can't live without all of these other things. You can change that determination. Look over in Romans chapter 11 and verse 13. This verse says, For I speak to you Gentiles... Forasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. This is Romans 11:13. This word magnify right here where he says, I magnify my office. Did you know that that is the exact same Greek word that was translated glorify in Romans 1:21? So I believe that you can use these interchangeably. It's talking about the same thing. When it talks about glorifying God, it's talking about magnifying God. The word magnify means to make bigger. Here's an amazing truth. Did you know that you can make God bigger? Technically speaking, you can't affect the actual size of God or the greatness of God. God is who He is irregardless of what you think. But as far as your experience goes, as far as your perception goes, you can make God bigger or you can make God small depending on how you think. It's just like a pair of binoculars. You look through the small end of the binoculars and out the big end and you know what? Everything becomes bigger. You can look through the exact same pair of binoculars and turn it around to where you look through the big end and out the little end and everything becomes smaller. Those same binoculars have the power to shrink or to magnify. 
Your mind is like that. Depending on choices, focus, things that you do, you can either magnify God and make God bigger, or you can diminish God. You can diminish problems, or you can make problems bigger. The sad thing is, most of us have become masters using this in reverse. We magnify the smallest, most insignificant things, and we minimize the important things of God. We have become so negative. I mean, the devil puts a little tiny toothpick in your path. And by the time you get through focusing on it and thinking about what this could mean and what could happen and all of these things, it becomes this huge ball bat and he just beats your brains out with this little tiny toothpick. You're the one that magnified it and made it so big. I had one of our Bible college students come to me one time, and this guy, he always had something wrong. And he wanted to see me, and he came into my office, and I said, what's wrong now? And he began to tell me that he went to church. This was on a Monday morning. He went to church on Sunday, and he was so hungry to hear the Word of God, and he sat behind two women who laughed and talked through the whole service. And he says, it distracted me and it stole the word from me. And he broke out crying about how the devil had stole the word from him. And I had just gotten off the phone with a friend of mine who had been married for nearly 50 years and had lost his wife. She had just died. And I called him to minister to him. And this guy was just glorifying God, magnifying God, talking about, oh, God is so great. God is so good. He had just lost his mate of 50 years and he was praising God. And in comparison, this guy had missed out on hearing a message because two women talked and he was crying and ready to quit and give up. That's stupid. How dumb can you get and still breathe? But you know what? I can guarantee you there's some of you today that the things that are bothering you so much, the thing that you're so upset about, even without the Lord intervening, a year from now, you'll forget it. it was, it's insignificant. It's not a problem. You are magnifying something. I have people come up in my prayer lines, and I, when I ask them what they want prayer for, and they tell me their problem, honestly, there are sometimes I have to nearly bite my lip to keep from laughing, like, this is it? This is your big problem that's derailed you? I've had worse things than that happen on my good days. Honestly, some of the things that people get upset over are nothing. They are nothing. You know, something that would change the way you magnify things is to buy you a one-way ticket to Albania or some of these countries and let you see what hardship is really like, let you see what suffering is really like, let you see some of these things, and you know what? You'd come back here and your whole perception would be changed. You would magnify things differently. You know, there's some people that discourage because they don't have the newest, latest model television. And we talk about kids today and say, oh, it's so hard on kids today. Man, it's not hard on kids today. This is the easiest generation that has ever been. You know what? And most people say, oh, well, now you just don't understand. You're out of touch. Some of you, I don't know if any of you ever heard of Thomas A. Crapper. Any of you ever hear of him? I read his biography. He's the guy that invented the toilet. There's a reason for some of these phrases. <laughs> but anyway, Thomas A. Crapper was born in the 1840s. Some of you are a little slow catching things. <laughs> he was born in about 1840 in England. 
And when he was 11 years old, I think it was 1850 or 51, somewhere around there, something like that, his parents gave him a sack that had some clothes in it and one day's food supply and told him they loved him, patted him on the back, and he was on his own. Walked 365 miles to London, didn't know any relatives, didn't have anybody. He was out on his own, live or die, sink or swim. He didn't have a social system the way we do today so that he could exist on welfare. He could have died. He was on his own at 11 years of age. And when I read that, I thought, my Lord, I said, this is early. I couldn't imagine one of my kids at 11 years old being out on their own trying to make it. And I said, this had to be unusual. And as I read on, the next paragraph said, this was very unusual. Most kids didn't leave home until they were 12. <laughs> Did you know in the 1850s in England, at 12 years old, you were an adult on your own, live or die, sink or swim? Now that's pressure. But not having designer jeans, not having the newest video games, not being able to do all the things that your friends do, not being able to watch MTV, that is not pressure. You know what? The only reason it's pressure is because we've magnified it. That Well, acceptance by your peers is so important. We've placed so much value on it. And, oh, you've got to feel good about yourself. And positive self-esteem and all of this stuff. Did you know a hundred years ago people were trying to survive and live another day and they didn't have time to think about their self-esteem? The reason there's so many people that are basket cases today and so messed up emotionally is because we have so many misplaced values about you having to feel good about yourself and all of these things that people haven't had to deal with in the past. I tell you what, it's not the pressure without that's the problem. It's the vacuum within that's the problem. It's the fact that our value systems are so screwed up today. People talk about, well, we live in such a pressure society. Nobody's lived under the pressure that we have. I tell you what, how about going back to World War II? Some of you are old enough to remember what that was like. Some of you have been through wars and different things. You know what? That's pressure. Sitting in a traffic jam is only pressure because you make it pressure because of the way you think and because we've got to get from point A to point B in five minutes and you left, you only have three minutes time to get there. You're the one that put the pressure on yourself. You're the one that have magnified these things. You're the one that has magnified this lifestyle and it put the pressure on yourself. This is not a pressure society. We are the most cush, privileged, easy people generation that has ever lived on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling pressure and worn out and burned out, it's because you have misplaced values. You are pressuring yourself. It's not our society. You got on the treadmill. It was your choice. Amen? I'm preaching better than you're listening. You know what? You're the ones that magnify or diminish everything that comes into your life. I had a girl, I probably told this story here too, but this girl had just gotten married, wanted a dozen kids, told everybody she was going to have a dozen kids. She was a minister's wife, and they were out on the road for up to six weeks at a time, and one time during one of their road trips, she called back and told everybody she was pregnant, so everybody was rejoicing. When she got back, went to the doctor, found out it was a tubular pregnancy, and instead of 
having a child, the doctor said they had to do an immediate hysterectomy on her and that she only had a 50% chance of living and she couldn't live more than two weeks without the surgery. And so this woman was just devastated. And I was talking to somebody on a Thursday night service and I was laughing and joking with them. This woman comes up and taps me on the shoulder and I turn around and she's crying and she says, Andrew, have you heard what they said? And I don't always respond this way. I just have to blame it on God. I think it was God. And you know what? I turned around and saw this woman crying and I, I just started laughing. <laughs> I said, cancer's no problem with God. I said, it's not a problem. You act like cancer. You know, if God heals your cancer, all the lights in heaven are going to dim because of the power drain. I said, man, God, it's not hard for God to heal cancer. It's not a problem. And it's just like I slapped this woman in the face. She just immediately stopped crying and looked at me like, well, would you come over to my house and talk to me and my husband about this? So Jamie and I went over, talked to her, and she says, what should I do? And I said, well, it's your choice. I said, you can let the doctors cut the cancer out. I said, and you can pray and, and believe that God will bless them and go that route. It's your choice. You can do that. But I said, if you do that, you'll never have children again. And she says, but what other option do I have? I said, just believe God. It's not any harder to get healed of cancer than it is a cold. And she says, do you really believe it? You know what I did? I magnified God and made God bigger than cancer. I diminished cancer and said, cancer isn't any harder to heal than a cold. The only thing that makes cancer hard is the value you place on it. And you know, after talking to her, this woman just decided to believe God. And the doctors came and made her sign hundreds of pages of stuff, you know, to absolve them of responsibility, liability when she died. And they intimidated her and told her she was foolish. What they tried to do was put more value on their diagnosis, which I'm not against doctors. Got my good friend Ronnie Bird here. Praise God for doctors. If it wasn't for doctors, all of Christians would have been dead. But you know what? There are a lot of doctors that don't value God and don't value His power. And these doctors were saying God is nothing compared to cancer. They tried to get her to change the value that she had placed on God's ability and power. And by the grace of God, she just stood her ground. And you know, that's been like 15 or 20 years ago that she refused to have that operation and she's now got a slew of kids, had them all at home because no doctor would ever <laughs> deliver her children after seeing her charts. And you know what? It was that simple. It really is. Just what do you value? What's big to you? Is cancer bigger to you than God? You know, you can magnify God. You can make God bigger. And the way you do it is by glorifying Him and just saying, Father, I thank You. Remember, going back to the Word of God and taking the stories in the Word of God and making these things more real than what your bank account says and what your friends say, than what your relatives say, than what your own mind tells you or anything. You get to a place to where God's Word is true and you magnify and make God bigger. Man, you think about stories like Jehoshaphat going out and fighting the armies and he put the singers in the front. And they went out praising God, didn't ever fire a shot, never had to use a sword and defeated three armies by just praising God. And you say, God, that's how big you are. That's how awesome you are. You destroyed hundreds of thousands of enemy troops through singers. Amen. And you know what? That makes God bigger. And then you intentionally disesteem your problems and say, this is of no value, it's of no worth to me. 
You know what? I don't want people to dislike me. I'd love for every person here to like me tonight. But I am not in the ministry to have you like me. I'm doing this because God placed a call on my life. When he called me, I was an introvert, couldn't talk to a person. I was shy. I was embarrassed. To stand in front of people like this was the last thing I wanted to do. And I tell you, for at least two years, it was terrible. I struggled, fear, and things like that. I am not doing this to get recognition from people. I'm doing this because I believe this is what God has called me to do. He's shared things with me that have not only changed my life, but they changed the lives of others. I'm doing this for God primarily and to help people. But you know what? I don't want you to dislike me. If you come up and start telling me how you don't like this message and stuff, it won't bless me. But you know what? It's not going to keep me up either. I won't lose a bit of sleep over it because when it comes right down to it, even though I would like for you to like me, I don't give a rip. You know what? I value God so much that I do this because of Jesus telling me to do it, whether anybody likes what I've got to say or not. You know why many of you are afraid to witness? Because the truth is you actually value the opinion, the acceptance of people more than you value God in your life. And you don't want to suffer the rejection. You don't want to expose yourself to the possibility that somebody may make fun of you and criticize you for what you've done. And you wonder why you're a leaky vessel? It's because you aren't glorifying God. You haven't placed the proper value on God. And God can move in your life. All Satan's got to do is put you in a situation where you compromise some way or another because you've got all of these other things that are so important to you that you have to maintain. And you're the one that walks away from the revelation of God. God never quits transmitting. If you've ever felt the love of God, the joy of God, the healing of God, the anointing, the presence of God, anything else, I can guarantee you God loves you exactly the same this moment as He ever did. God loves you more. His power is more real in your life than what you've ever perceived, ever. It's not God that's the variable. It's you that walked away. And you know what? You can go back and you can refresh the things of God in your life by just start glorifying Him. You can go back and say, Father, forgive me that I've placed value on other things. Forgive me that I let what people thought about me become more important than what you have done. Father, forgive me that I got more interested in the World Series or the Super Bowl and I forgot you and I put other things ahead of you. Father, forgive me that I magnified my business and my family and other things above you. And you can go back and start glorifying, magnifying God. And the way you do that is by talking about it. Going back and remember, we're going to be talking about being thankful and imagination. All of these things are involved. We'll be giving you more information on this this week. But you can magnify God and you can go back and take whatever has happened in your life and refresh that, get it back. Did you know I go back and I remember the things that God has done in my life? And actually, they are more real to me. They're bigger in my life today than they were 32 years ago. When people preach about losing your first love and returning to your first love, did you know I've never had to do that? Now, it does happen. That was mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. I'm not condemning you if it has happened. If it has happened, you can return, but don't try and 
return by going to God and asking God for a new revelation of His love, that's like saying, God, what you did wasn't good enough. It wasn't God that quit transmitting. It was you that quit receiving. The thing to do is to go back and say, Father, forgive me for ever walking away from it and valuing, prizing, placing more esteem on other things than what I've placed on you. And you can go right back to wherever you left God and go back and start once again magnifying and putting the proper worth and value on the things of God. And you can recover from anything that you've lost. The truth is you didn't lose it. You know, if you were ever healed, the healing virtue of God is still in you. It never leaves. You have that same virtue on the inside of you. It's not God that quit releasing. It was you that quit receiving. And you can go back and you can build yourself up. David did this in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 5 and 6. When people talked about stoning him, it says that David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. People were talking about stoning him. He had lost his wives and his children. Not only had he suffered personally, but now his very men were going to stone him to death. Instead of getting discouraged and thinking about all of the things, and poor old me, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He began to glorify and magnify God in the midst of a bad situation. You can choose to do that. You can choose to get down, ball and squall, gripe and complain. Or you can choose to magnify God. You know, when I say that it's been 32 years since I've been discouraged and depressed, some people think, well, you just hadn't had any problems. You know what? I have problems. Anybody has problems. But I've just made some conscious decisions that, God, I like being full of joy more than I like being depressed. And so I encourage myself in the Lord. There's sometimes I just literally have to shut out what's going on in my life and not look at that, and I just force myself to focus on God and magnify God and glorify Him. Sometimes I've had to start doing it through gritted teeth. I didn't feel like it. I didn't have a rush of joy, of emotion, but I through gritted teeth. God, I glorify You. You're awesome. Amen. Eventually that joy and peace goes to flow, and it hadn't been very long before it happens. You're the one that can choose to do these things. You can edify yourself. It says that Abraham in Romans chapter 4 It says he was not weak in faith, but he was strong in faith. How? Giving glory to God. You want to know how to be strong in faith? Give glory to God. Magnify God. Put worth and value on God. Say, God, you're bigger than this financial problem. God, you're bigger than this marriage problem. You're bigger than this relationship. You're bigger than my job. You're bigger than this healing. You're bigger than anything. God, you're awesome. You start magnifying God. And you know what? Faith just grows. Some of us, the reason we don't have any more faith in God is because we haven't spent any time magnifying God and saying that God's bigger than your problem. And you need to say things like, God, you're bigger than my problem. You're bigger than all of these things that I'm facing. You need to glorify Him, magnify Him. When you do, faith rises, and man, anything is possible. All things are possible. It's up to us to glorify God. And I tell you, this is an area that is not being done very well today in most people's lives. We magnify the problems. Our society is geared on magnifying insignificant things. And boy, we need to put the right value on things. You know, as Mike Failauer I mentioned talked about, he read a story that somebody broke into a department store and they didn't steal anything. What they did was during the night they changed all the price tags. 
so that a $200 vacuum was selling for $8 and an $8 item was selling for $200. And you know, they did business till noon before they found out what happened. And it caused havoc. This is what Satan has done in our society. He's come in and changed the values so that some of us just think we have to have certain things. We put so much attention on things that I can guarantee you in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. These people that we were looking at their graves yesterday in that cemetery, I told you about this morning, do you know what? Most of the things that were so important and so valuable to them, doesn't matter. It's over with. God is the only thing. Your relationship to God is really the only thing that matters in your life. And boy, you need to place value and worth on that. Do it consistently. And you'll stay full of healing. You'll stay full of joy. You'll stay full of deliverance. You'll stay full of anointing and power. Whatever it is that you need, you're the one that determines how full you are. God is not the one that determines. You're the one that determines how much revival Shreveport has, not God. You get full of God and go out and slosh over on somebody else, and you know what? You can start spreading this revival. and That's the way that it works. It's not up to God. It's up to us. We're the ones that determine. Amen? Well, oh, that's a good word. That's an awesome word. 